Hey everyone, David Nagel here. Welcome to the Successful Mind Podcast. Today my guest is Quan Wen, and he's been described as a mighty warrior, a magician, and a mountain of goodness. He's the best-selling author of Sparrow and the Razor Wire, Finding Freedom from Within While Serving a Life Sentence. Now, his book was written for men that are doing, doing long or life-term sentences, and in it, he shares how he found his freedom years before he was actually paroled. After spending 22 years in and out of correctional institutions, Quan was paroled from a life sentence in 2015 and created his first company six months later. The following year, he received a Peace Fellowship Award for his work with Alternatives to Violence Project. He works as the executive director of Defy Ventures, a nonprofit whose mission is to shift mindsets to give those with criminal histories their best shot at a second chance through career readiness, personal development, and entrepreneurship training programs. Quan has been featured in Entrepreneur, PBS NewsHour, talks at Google, and numerous other publications. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Successful people learn how to make their mind work for them. I'm David Nagel, and this is the Successful Mind Podcast. Hey, Quan, how you doing? Nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. Tell everybody what, who you are and, and what your story is, and let's kind of move on from there because I think it'd be interesting to just move into the conversation from that place. Okay. Um, yeah, my name is Quan Huyen. I currently work as uh, the executive director for Defy Ventures. It's a nonprofit, and our mission is to shift mindsets to give uh, people with criminal histories their best shot, shot at a second chance through career readiness, uh, personal development and entrepreneurship training programs. I'm also a published author and a, a business owner. Now, it's my understanding that you didn't go to like an Ivory League school to learn how to do this. Is that correct? Uh, that's very <laughs> correct, yes. I've, um, I'm actually a product of the California prison system. I've served uh, 22 years of my life in and out of uh, correctional facilities. What happened? How did you, how did you end up there? Uh... Let me see. I I mean, that's a that's a long that's his own long story. But um, let me see. I I I grew up in Provo, Utah. Okay. Um, we settled here in the United States after our family lost our country after the Vietnam War. Um, my father decided to settle there because he had been to the United States before and kind of knew the geography of the United States. My mother had never seen snow, so of course. My father said, oh, his, his great idea was to move us to Provo, Utah. So we were, you know, Roman Catholic, the only Vietnamese family there. I imagine the very first one. <laughs> Probably. And in um, Utah, which is a beautiful place. It is. But it's mostly Mormons. And um, I did experience what I now know to be racism growing up um, as a little boy. So um, and that always caused a chip on my shoulder later on. Um, my father got diagnosed with leukemia when I was around eight years old. And um, by the time I was 10, he's, his condition was getting worse. So he wanted to move out to California to be closer to his family. Okay. Um, yeah. And in Utah, I never felt like we fit in. I remember growing up, I would, 
I was always thinking like, why can't I look normal like the kids around me? Why can't our family look normal? Why are these? You mean kids physically look normal? Yeah, right? like why? Yeah. Well, just what I saw because all I saw around me was, you know, White blonde Mormons. hair <laughs> and, and blue eyes and yeah. brown eyes. Like, but like, yeah, we yeah. So, and we got teased in public, and of course, you know, I think I I think just the because the Vietnam War was so had was just in everyone's mind. I remember like one of the most um, traumatic incidents that. Uh, for me as a little boy was my younger brother and I were playing in, uh, with our G.I. Joes in the streams. And we were like eight. I was eight. He's probably six. And what year would this be? What year? Eight. Well, if it's eight, uh, eight, 1982. 82. Okay. Right around there. And um, some, some older kids and adults were throwing rocks down at us and telling us like, get out of our country, go, go home, get out of this country. Wow. Um, and so me and my brother, I think at the time, the, the, the fence looked very high and we didn't think they could get to us. We told them, come and make us. And those kids uh, jumped the fence and chased us down. I had dropped some of my G.I. Joe figures. Um, my brother turned to pick them up and they punched them and shoved them to the ground, began putting dirt in his mouth. Um, and I stood there and didn't do anything. Um, I was terrified. And then when I came home, my father, when he found out, he, he had told me, he's like, how could you let this happen to your little brother? You're supposed to protect your family. Um, so I think for me that instilled this, this thought, like later on, I just remember every time my brother and I, we faced any type of, um, conflicts that, 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 that in any way, I think him and I both went above and beyond in, in just protecting each other. And okay. we would just have, yeah, so a lot of, um, physical altercations because of like, Oh, somebody said something to my brother, I have to protect my brother and, and vice versa. So that was instilled in me. Um, I don't think my that was my dad's intention, but that is the the byproduct right. of it. Yeah, right. So we move out here to Cali because well, out here, but we moved out to to California because um, his condition was getting worse, and that's the first time I went to school with um, blacks and Hispanics and other Asian kids. It's uh, in particular Vietnamese kids. Uh, but I also didn't feel like I fit in. I remember um, the Vin some of the Vietnamese kids had teased me for. Um, being whitewashed uh, because I couldn't speak the language well. So then for me, I just grew up thinking, wait, I don't, I don't fit in anywhere. I, uh, I'm not accepted. There's something wrong with me. And I just always had that, that thought at the back of my head. Like I don't fit in. I, 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 I'm not accepted. There's something wrong with me. And I just remember growing up with that. Um, so my father uh, passes away from leukemia on the day of our first communion. I, uh, I was 13 years old. Okay. I remember that morning waking up. Um, we were supposed to go to our first communion. My grandma was there, and my little sister pe peeks her head up from the shower and she says, "Like, Dad died last night." And I'm like, what? She's like, "Yeah, I overheard Mom and Grandma talking about it." Was he in the hospital? Well, yeah, he was in he was in, in the hospital. hospital. Um, and she she tells me like, "We're not supposed to know." So we went to church that day. I remember thinking like, it wasn't until later when I was writing the book and processing all this like. We went to church that day for our first communion. Um, all, all three of us, all three of the kids, knowing our, our father's dead, but we're in there and the priest is talking about, this is a joyous occasion. We're here to celebrate. And for some bizarre reason, we all three thought we had to pretend that he was still alive or something. I don't know why, but we didn't talk about it. Um, the first that my mom confirmed it was right after mass when she said, your dad died last night. So it was in the day of our first communion, which... When I look back, like all three of us, we believed, okay, 
this is the first day we get to eat the bread and you get your first prayer. Right. And I imagine all of us were going to pray for our dad to, to survive. So um, that, that caused a lot of resentment towards, like, you know, God, uh, my father, my mom. And so it was, yeah, so 13 years old, my, my, my father had died. And now there was, and we never talked about it again. We never processed his, you know, nowadays, like, okay, you, you're, you're seeing a therapist and you can process and talk about this. We not did then. not. Not then, no. And I would have to say I did not begin processing until like 25 years later when I was doing a life sentence in prison is wow. when I began to the, the mourning process. So then, so was it your just siblings and your mother at that point then? Yeah. Uh, my mom was uh, basically tasked with raising uh, three of us. We were, um, so she had to get a full-time work to, to, to take care of all three of us. And uh, so me and my brother, ended up starting to run on the streets, like with the kids in, in the neighborhood, you know, like just, I think it was just kids that, that were also, um, people call it like misfits and things like that, but we're just kids that were misguided. We didn't, yeah. we didn't have a father figure and my mom's never dared to take care of us. And also there's this, this point of this context of not being able to talk about my father's death and, 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 and how that affected me. Um, and then also this other, this seed of doubt about myself as a person, like I don't sure. fit in. And so it's just, uh, stepping into high school and, and, and what that did for, for me is like, okay, I, I, I don't know what to do and I don't know where to go with my life. So at, at that age, well, let me ask you, maybe we ask the question differently. When, when did, then did you start having problems that were showing up either educationally or socially? Where, where did that start to manifest itself? Um, I think around like sophomore, junior, to start to manifest something, start to get in trouble around the, or yeah. my junior year um, when I had a car. I mean, well, no, no, you know, okay, we have to backtrack. So I already started 13, after my father passed away, I remember the first time I went out with uh, one of my friends and his older brothers and we broke into some cars. I don't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to drive a car or anything, but there was a, this rush with it. And I think that's that's where it began manifesting itself. I didn't get in trouble because I wasn't getting caught. Um, but I saw this rush and then I remember um, these older guys like, oh, um, you're good at breaking into the car. So then I think like, oh, cool. This is how these kids, these older guys are liking me. And this is where I begin to fit in. Gotcha. So that's where it kind of um, already manifested itself. So I think I gravitated towards kids that were kind of like troublemakers, but like we're still trying to do good in school because of course um, my mom's thing is, okay, you just got to go to school. Um, get good grades, and because my father was a military officer um, for the South Vietnamese Army, so growing up in Utah, um, when he created the Vietnamese Refugee Association over there, uh, there were quite a bit of government um, officials that used to come to our, our home, and I remember as a boy, they told me, you're going to be the very first uh, Vietnamese American to go to West Point. You're going to be just like your father. So, of course, what kid doesn't want to be like his father? So that was always sure. my dream. Um, wanted to go westward. I remember talking about it the very first time in high school. I think it was in um, my model United Nations class or something. Uh -huh. And all the other kids laughed at me. They said, West Point, how are you going to get to West Point? There's no way. And I was like, I don't know. And by that time, I, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get there. I just hope there's some miracle. Because when I look back now, I think it was a way for me to redeem myself in my father's eyes. Like, okay, I could still make my father proud in some way. Um and still not unsure why I would think my father is not proud of me, but that was that was that was always a thought in the back of my mind. Like, yeah, yeah I'd, like, I'd like to. This is how I could um, make my dad proud and make the, my family proud. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, he did he did put that idea a little bit into your mind when he when he asked you why you didn't stand up for your brother. Yeah. Right. So there was a little seed there probably mm -hmm. that happened. But you start to experience this uh this feeling of being accepted when you're breaking into these cars. So what so what happened after that? How'd well, that progress? Just, um, well, it just progressed because then, uh, of course, I always had this chip on my shoulder when it came to racism. Very sensitive to anybody saying anything about, like, our race and our language. Um, yeah, I remember my brother and I would, and our group of friends would get in fights quite often when people would mimic the way we're talking in public or things like that. Um, so anybody making fun of the way that you look or the or way the that way you talk. talk. Yeah, or they, like, you see in public, like, or, you know, because especially in high school, like, they were still, or we go to the beach and then some kids were like, oh, ching chong chong, whatever. And it's like, what? Yeah. What'd you say? So before, we're, we're, I'm with my group of friends, what'd you say? And we turn around and we end up fighting. And then suddenly there's this sense of power. Um, and by the time I, I remember in my junior high school, because it was almost like there was a part of me that, okay, I, I'm going to redeem myself and I'm going to, go to, to West Point somehow or some way. So that's why I'm still trying to get good grades. But there's another part of me that felt very drawn to, like, these are my friends, and this is there's this sense of, like, acceptance uh, in this group of guys. The street guys. Yeah, some of these street guys. So I remembered... Well, here's a question. Yeah. I just interrupt for a second. The street guys, are are they all Vietnamese, or are they black some, and Mexican, white? Some, some, yeah, it's all mixed. It's, it's all mixed. mixed. It's all mixed, yeah. It's all mixed. So there was no sense of uh, race issue at that. It was, no. th there was yeah. something else that was tying you guys together. Yeah, I think it was more like, you know, I think around that time, there was the hip-hop culture going out. Coming, yeah. That was very popular. And so we like to dress a certain way, and we like to go to listen to a certain type of music. So that was like our group of friends. And then, of course, in, in that culture, it's like, okay, if you're in this group and somebody in your group is fighting, you have to you have to back them up sure. in the fight. So it was like this this young male machismo that that, yeah. that that we were just, and that's just what we thought. Like, okay, we didn't look at ourselves as gang members. We didn't look at ourselves as, as bad kids. It was just like, this is my group of friends, and this is what I like to do, um, and this is how we protect each other. Yeah. I don't think people that, that grow up, on the streets understand that code. I mean, I grew up on the streets of Chicago and it was very tight that way, right? You had your own neighborhood and even within the neighborhood, sometimes there were fractional little, you know, you might have the Mexicans on one side of the neighborhood and the Italians on the other side of the neighborhood, the Irish over here. Um, and it was interesting because sometimes they would fight amongst themselves. But if, if somebody came from another neighborhood, then the three of those would get together and they'd be against the yeah. other one. They would all get together to protect their neighborhood from somebody from, from another neighborhood. So it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, I mean, I grew up in a place where that this is just the way that it is. You know, like your dad said, how come you have to protect your family? I think that there is this idea that whatever group you're in, that's the group that you belong to and right or wrong, you have to protect that group. Um, because it doesn't sound like there was an idea of breaking into these cars is right or wrong. It's just something that you were doing with a group of people. And because you were accepted, that seemed to feel better than anything yeah. else. I remember like before I even drove. Um, and then by the time we got my, my friend and the guy got so good at these is like, we used to break into the cars and we'd still the, we'd pull out the, the car stereo system. Yeah. So under my, under my bed, I remember one day, like, my mom's like, oh, what are you doing with all these car stereos? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm fixing them. She goes, you're so smart. And I did not know how to drive a car. I did not know how to install this stereo system. But I knew that we could grab those and we could pull it out and we could sell it. Yeah. And that was 
And that was just what we did. And yeah, that was that was just part of what, like, what by 14, 15, that's what we were kind of doing. That's why, okay, this is where we get our little rush. And, and I'm accepted by um, my friend's older brothers and stuff like that, which, of course, then you go out and then... Um, the, the, the older brothers have these beautiful women around them. And so as a, 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 a teenager, like, oh, you're, uh, I was very fascinated with that. Like, okay, I, now I'm finally feeling like I could, there's a part of me that still feels like I don't fit in, but here I feel like at least I'm a little accepted and this is why, this is my group of guys and I'm going to um, follow the, the code of, of what yeah. we have to do. Yeah. You're getting attention now. Yeah. So when does this start to turn really bad? Um, I would say... If I trace it back now, it, it, it took the turn for the worse when one of my friends had got a, um, a gun. It was a twenty-two caliber. It's a small gun. Um, I can't remember why he got it, but then he started to carry it around. And then we went to a house party when uh, we were outnumbered by this other group by like 20, to, 20 of them, like on four or five of us. My friend had pulled out that gun, and this other group just ran. And that is when we just saw like the power and the... the like how it drew us all they're like, oh wow, we have a gun. And then people started talking about O'Quan oh, and his friends got a gun. And you can't mess with that group. So that was where we thought, okay, we're now like the top group around here, or whatever we're thinking in our, our, our limited minds at the time. Um and then so that was like in our vernacular when every time we spoke, okay, well we'll just we have a gun, we'll just uh, uh if somebody says something, we'll shoot up the house or we'll shoot them up here. So um when I was 17... So the idea was to, just to scare people, to, to feel powerful. It wasn't really to hurt anybody at that no, point? No, at, okay. at the time, I, I don't even know why he got the gun. Like, I'm thinking back now, I, can, I cannot remember why my friend, but there was somebody selling a gun on the street, and one of my friends decided, this is what we need to do, and he, he decided to, that he wanted to buy a gun. Okay. Um, never shot it before. None of us had ever shot it. He just knew that we had one. Um, and then when he pulled it out at that party, that is when I think all of us saw the, the the allure of it like this is what a gun can do to this is like our super equalizer so we don't need to have a big group this is still our group of friends and yes we were outnumbered but look we can say they all ran from us um so f that probably happened about a month before my very first arrest uh about a month later i was working at subway sandwiches okay and i was 17 my brother had come to um the subways one evening and said these uh, these these other kids from uh, a continuation high school that professed to be skinheads had called my house and threatened to kill my mom and my sister. And he said he knew who they were. Um, so then we were there, like our, our group of friends, and then they said, okay, what time do you get off, Juan? And I said, I get off at 10 o'clock. They said, okay, we'll come back and pick you up, um, and then we'll find their house and we'll shoot it up. I said, okay. So 10 o'clock comes, I get off work, and they... They weren't there. So I drove home, and when I came home, I remember my younger brother was in bed, and he was, looked terrified. He was 15 at the time, and he laid in bed, and he, I said, what happened? Um, he's like, oh, we found the house, and they ran up inside, and they shot. He goes, look outside the window, and there was a helicopter circling. He goes, um, that was us. Like They, sh they shot people inside. Uh, so it wasn't the house they shot up. They went in and shot people. Yes. Okay. One of my friends decided he walked up to the door, knocked on it, Whoever opened it, he shot that person. He ran inside, shot two more people inside, and then he ran back out. Did anybody die? No. Fortunately, all three survived. Um, within a couple weeks, they arrested all of us, including me, for conspiracy to commit murder. 
So at 17, I was facing uh, 45 years to life. Um, that was my first arrest. I ended and you up, didn't actually do anything. You just knew that it was supposed to happen. And that's, well, we talked about it supposed to happen. So, so that was a conspiracy part. Yeah, that was the conspiracy part. Okay. That was a conspiracy part. Like that, because I was there and, and we talked about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not here to argue the legality of it, but did I really think that, that um, anything was going to happen? No. But I mean, right. like, on the flip side, what do you think happens when you carry a gun and you talk about things like that? It's inevitable. So, you know, there, there, there's there's two sides to that. Yeah, it's definitely heading in a direction. Yes. But how many 17-year-old group of boys talk about the craziest shit in the world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and... Uh, but, Especially but I, when there's weapons involved. And I get like, it. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Well, it takes it to another level. I mean, there's yeah. there's no weapons and then there's, and then there's weapons. So... So then, so then you get arrested. You're literally arrested. Your brother, your brother's arrested. Yes, my also. brother's arrested. So yeah. what happens next? Uh, they tried me as an adult, and then of course in the um, California uh, system, even juvenile hall, everything is split up by race. So your group is this. So my group was the Asians, and in particular the Vietnamese. Like uh, this is who I. Everything have to is split up by race. Yes, in California, things are split up by race. Do you know why that is? I'm not exactly sure. I think it's a, a, a part of both. Um, Do they think they're going to keep violence down by doing that? Well, I think that's... So there, there's several schools of thought on this. I think the they continue to perpetuate because as long... If I'm speaking from a, a perspective of us being incarcerated, I think the prison system might want us separated so then they could displace the powers amongst us okay. and have us play off against each other. Um, that, 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 that's one of my thoughts because if they, if they don't break it up and I think it just became like once, I think by the time I came in, it was already had been done like that for decades. So it was just always like automatic. This is how it split up. But I think previous to that, um, like I've seen like where the men have banded together, like from different races and they're banding together to go. I think that would be a prison guard's worst nightmare to see like there's a group of guys that are now trying to band themselves together and um, to fight back against the prison system. Yeah, that that would be a nightmare for them. So it's it's better for them to continue to separate us and and, and play us off against each other. So, so you're tried as an adult. What about your brother? My brother was not because he was 15 at the time. This was 1991. So 92, that following year, they did they did change the law down to a 14-year-old could be tried as an adult and given uh, uh, a life without possibility of parole, 14 years old, which they recently just overturned. But in 1992, um, that, was, that came into law where they could yep, lock, lock up a kid for the rest of his life at 14 years old. Huh. And what about, the, and it was a friend, the other person was a friend? Uh, or was it just, just your brother that got arrested? Oh, it was my brother and two of my friends. Two of your friends. What happened to them? Um, they were given, yeah, we were all facing 45 years to life. I think I I ended up getting seven years in the California Youth Authority. Okay. Same with uh, the shooter. Um, and there was a guy that they had picked up at the arcade that showed where the house was. He was the oldest one. He was over 18. I think he got five years. Yeah, if I remember correctly. So the shooter got the same amount of time as you did. Yes. How did that happen? Yeah, that's uh, uh, those conspiracy laws. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so you get seven years, and but you've been in in and out for twenty two years, right? Yeah. So I I got seven years. I ended up doing about two and a half. 
Um, when I came out, I was more angry, confused. Um, and by so that time, it didn't I, help anything. I didn't. And by that time, I was really indoctrinated. I mean, uh, once they said, this is your group, and now I'm with a group of, of Vietnamese, and this is my people. I remember thinking, it was, it was so weird to think, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Now I finally fit in. And this is what I knew. Like, a riot happens, and now it's like I'm, I'm projecting, okay, now I'm... I understand to protect my brother, but now, okay, now I understand to protect my people. And there's a, a, a whole nother level of violence that I was willing to do while inside. And then the more violence I perpetuate, the more I feel accepted. And it just continues to, right. to, to steamroll. So um, by the time I, I, I paroled the first time, I had, you know, I, I, I'd taken basically a bunch of the criminal and the gang values onto the streets with me. Um, and then a lot of the guys that I was friends with inside is, are the core group of guys that, that later on we formed or gang with them. So you were, before we, before we were doing the podcast, you and I were having a conversation and you were telling me something that was, I find it extremely fascinating. And the idea that when a person comes out of prison, they're actually just starting prison in another way because most of their rights are removed. They can't get a loan. They, they can't, basically, they can't get a job. They're discriminated against. Um, they they lose their housing. They get housing. They lose their right to vote. They're basically yeah. losing everything. And I asked you, how are they supposed to survive? And there was no, like, there's no answer. Like, nobody has seems to have an answer to this. Mm-hmm. And I told you I had asked some friends about this. So since uh, I found out about your book and we were going to do the podcast, and not one person that I had talked to knew to the extent uh, the damage that's done, you know, I mean, because we think about it, okay, somebody screwed up, they, they, they pay their time to society, they come out, but then, but what, what, but then what happens? So nobody seems to realize that when they come out, uh, they're almost forced back into criminal activity in order to be able to survive. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So at uh, Defy Ventures, that's what we talk about too. Um, a lot of banks, a lot of them, uh, potential employment partners, a lot of uh, other community-based organizations. Like somebody coming home from prison, although they've served their time, they are beginning a second sentence and, uh, of sorts. And the second sentence is going to keep them from getting uh, meaningful work um, or even just employment. It will keep them from getting uh, uh, some type of fair credit, uh, uh, fair lending practices, their fair housing um yeah, any type of general relief. There's there's a lot of... I mean, I was speaking with um, a guy in the hotel lobby yesterday, and he says, I think just here in North Carolina, uh, to get some type of housing, they do a credit check, that a background check that goes back 100 years. He said literally 100 years, just to make sure nothing pops up. Um, so he, was, he disclosed to me that he's also formerly incarcerated, and he faced quite a bit of challenges even when he paroled. Um, when he came home from, uh, I think, federal prison. So then did you have a series of other small convictions or how did yes. and it, so just everything just piled up? Yeah, for so a when I came home, I mean, I could not find work. I remember checking the boxes and even my pro agent at the time, I think I couldn't find work for like six, eight months. Uh, and then he, I was like, like, nobody's calling me back. And then, I'm going to ask a question because I just want to make, be clear on this. And it's something that I'm not, I'm an employer and I'm not even clear on this. Every, every employment application I have ever filled out in my life has those questions. Have you ever been convicted of a misdemeanor or a felony? Is it not illegal to discriminate against somebody that's had a 
uh, uh, that it's a criminal experience. It, like it's not illegal. Been, it's not legal. It's not illegal. It's not illegal. So you can. So we can legally well, basically, discriminate. Yeah, I mean, that's basically the... Yeah, I mean, with my work at Defy, that's what we talk about that these as the um, new barriers to entry for, for re-entry for people coming back from prison. So, okay, if, um, if they, somebody told me, I won't hire you because you're Asian or I won't hire you because you're this race, then that's discrimination. But now... Instead of so making it colorblind for people, but saying, "Okay, well, I won't hire you because you're formerly incarcerated." That's, that's absolutely okay. So, what turned your mindset around? Uh, because you're very different, apparently, now from the what you were learning, right? Right. So you're you're kind of, I mean, when you listen to your story, I get the whole idea that everybody has a choice in life, right? But your life experience from a little boy is pushing you in a direction and it's pushing you and pushing you and pushing you in, this, in a direction. And even, even when we would say, you know, uh, it's a family's job to raise the children, you, you, it's a terrible thing, you lose your father. I come uh, from a house where my parents split up when I was very young. My mother was forced to uh, work incredible hours to take care of us. So I know what that's like. It's just me and my brother. Nobody's there. You can do whatever the hell you want. Nobody's saying you can't do this. There's no, there's no male guidance in two boys' lives, right? Mm-hmm. Same for you. You're, so you're being pushed in this, in this direction. You finally find your people in prison. You feel like you're part of something, but the, 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 the value build underneath it, underneath of this, is is criminality and violence. So how how do you change that for yourself, or how did you change that for yourself? So, yeah, um, after the first arrest, I came home, got involved with, um, still got involved with the the gangs and everything. I was uh, violated for like gun violations, gang violations. So I was going in and out. And, so just right back to the same stuff. Yeah, right back to the same stuff. Um, and then uh, I, re- I paroled. My last time I paroled was in 1998. And um, still had not done any personal work or anything on myself. Uh, was still straddling the fence, like living basically two lives. One, trying to uh, have work and enroll in college, do something good with my life. And that the other, still very drawn to the gang and the criminal lifestyle. Ended up um, at a, a nightclub one evening. Um, oh, backtrack that one thing. So then I was working at um, this organization called the Gallup Organization when they, they used to do the Gallup polls and things like that. Um, I, I was their 1998 interviewer of the year, and then they had asked me to interview for a management position. So I remember when I, I went in for that position interview, I was like, oh, finally something's going to go right for once in my life, like, Maybe I can make something of myself. Um, I interviewed for that position, and their interviews there are done. Uh, they're personality based, so it's not. So it's like, what do you think about when you drive home at night? What color do you is do you associate with this word or whatever things? All these weird random questions. Uh, about a month later, they came back and they had told me, "We're sorry, Quan, but uh, we don't think that you're a fit for the position." That's the exact words they use, and. Um, and I think that's just in their language, like of the fit under fit for the management thing. Okay. For me, I think all I heard is I still don't fit in. I'm still not accepted. Um, I didn't deal well with that. So I just shoved it into a corner, didn't talk about it. I remember I went down to the, um, 
the bar at my work and just got drunk, didn't talk to my girlfriend about it. And then about a week later, I was at a club up in Hollywood with some of my uh, gang associates. They got into a fight. Um, I, I came out of the club that night. Uh, I found out that they had gotten into the fight. So I, from there, I orchestrated following that other group. Um, I had a gun with me, so I've, we followed them for about 20, 25 miles. And I ended up sh- um, shooting and killing one person by the name of Minuin and injuring two others in the car after we followed them. So for me, um, the parole board kept on asking me, like, why? Why did you have to be the trigger man? You were not there at the, the fight. And for me, after I had done a lot of work over the years, and I'll share that in a little bit, but it's like in this part of my life, like I might feel like a failure, like trying to, to succeed and, and make something of my life. Uh-huh. But there's another part of my life, the gang and the gang life. I knew how I could be accepted. I knew how I could um, be recognized. And that was through like violence. Um, and that is, that is what motivated me. Like, okay, yeah, I feel, I feel like a piece of shit in this part of my life, but here I could make something with it. Um, so this is how I'll alleviate this, whatever feelings that I have going on inside of me. How does the parole parole board react to something like that? When you say that, do you think there's any understanding or consciousness behind it at all? What's Uh, going on with the human psychology there? I, I would have to say, I think so. Cause it took, I mean, like, for the first 10, 12 years of my sentence, I, I would have to say, like, I had, I'm ashamed to say I had no sense of remorse. I, I, I used to tell myself um, that it was my life or theirs, um, that this is a gang thing. And, you know, I, I justified it in my mind. Yeah. Um, and the the parole board will ask questions. I, at the time, I didn't understand the parole process. I did not understand it at all. Um and that's a major part of my book. Like I began each chapter of my book with the actual transcripts from my parole hearing. Um, to give you context, inside the California uh, prison system, every time you go to a, a parole hearing, they issue an actual transcript of the hearing. But the men inside never shared their transcripts with each other. It's almost like you keep it close to yourself. Um is there a reason for that? I don't know. It's just, it's just always done. Like, it's like, okay. okay, you don't talk about your crime. You don't share with it. People shouldn't be asking about it. You don't talk about it. And that was just, that was just what it believed. Um, so then a bunch of weird things happened, like around the, you asked where the, the change came. Uh, I've always been a bookworm and it, uh, that's where I found my escape is through books. And I have a tendency to go down rabbit holes on, on so you started reading in prison. Yeah. Well, I, I always, I've always been a bookworm, even out here. Like, okay. like you know, I, growing up, I, I think I used to love reading fantasy books, and I, I used to imagine like, oh, I wish I could be one of these uh, knights that find a magic potion to save my father or something. So I think I, I projected a lot of that too, onto that. Um, so during that time, uh, around 2010, I became fascinated with um, these. Like I remember going down rabbit trails on books on entrepreneurship and personal development or something. And somehow I stumbled on books of the saints and in particular stories about saints that had failed in one way or another um, in their lives, but yet had gone on to create legacies. So I was very drawn by these stories. And then of course that leads me down rabbit trails on spirituality, mindfulness, and um, a million other topics. Uh, so it became, became like this perfect storm in my head. Uh, at the same time, I also got a picture of my l- brother's 
daughter, like my little niece, and yeah. and it, I saw I was like she looks exactly like as uh, 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 reminds me of my brother. Like this, this is what my brother looked like as a baby, but this is now a girl. Like this is life. Yeah. And then my grandfather died at that around that time, who was my father's father. So then I started thinking like, how did I end up here? Like, am I meant to die in prison? Um, my father in his, what, 38 years on earth had created so much. Like with, I remember his funeral and all the people that came. And then I contrasted that with my own life. I, I think at the time I was 35, 38 too. And I'm thinking like, look what my dad did in, in his life term. And look at me, like here I am doing a life sentence and I'm going to die in here. Because California had not paroled one single lifetime prisoner since 1977. Holy so cow. at that time, like there was no action, no nothing for us. Um, all of this boiled in my mind. And it was one day on a prison yard when I was just standing there. I was like, why do I have to view prison as punishment? Why can't I view this place as uh, an opportunity for me to remake myself into a better person, even if I'm supposed to die? And of course, you know, the the universe will answer back. Because yes, you can. And that made all the difference in the world. I remember um, the, the the sun was coming up over the hills and I could feel the warmth. Uh, on the little blades of grass, I could see the individual drops of dew. And up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. And, you know, I tell everyone, like, the sparrows had probably been chirping my whole term, but I never heard it. But that day I heard the sparrow and I would have to say from that day, that's where my process of transformation began. I did not view these men around me. Like I saw them like, wait, we're all here to just um, be on this journey. Some of them much further along than me and some of them perhaps not even awakened. But I looked at them like this is a huge opportunity for me uh, to begin to remake myself. So, of course, the first thing I did was I went to check in with a therapist, which, of course, in the prison system is also frowned upon. You know, like any type of mental health is is the same thing as... Uh, By the other people in the prison. Yes. Like, it's that's what upon. we believe. Yeah. Like, oh, you're seeing a therapist? Something's wrong with you. Um, and that is why, for me, I was like, man, I feel drawn. Like, I have to to talk about this. I, I need to see a therapist. I need to figure these thoughts in my mind. And, um, and that is when I began the process of grieving for my father. Like 25 years after he had passed away, I began the grieving process. But then, of course, being the consummate bookworm, I became fascinated with the grief and loss books and um, began reading a bunch of them, and in particular, the the model by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah. And then I noticed, like, there were men all around me, like, wait, these are all men around me that are su suffering from some form of of grief or an, an inability to to mourn anything um whether that's losing like a wife or or because they're they're they no longer want to be around or they have to divorce them whether that's them being um, uprooted from one prison and losing all the friends that they've had for years and being transferred to another prison not being able to talk about it um losing like the, their their middle age years and now these men are in their 60s and 70s yeah like, everybody's suffering loss. So, and I saw it. Um, so I, I remember I put together a, a syllabus and I, uh, and I submitted it to the prison psychologist. Um, the psychologist loved it and we created the prison's first ever uh, grief and loss group. And when I went into the group and saw the men that came in there and, and, and the space it provided, 
that is when I, 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 I would have to say I felt alive for, for the first time. Like, wait, I'm doing something meaningful and feeling alive in a good way. So that, of course, gets me fascinated with group psychodynamics and creating groups. So I enrolled myself in other self-help groups, began to create other groups. Um, and it just began building this process for me and like me in there every day, like, how do I make myself a better person today? Um, and each night, like journaling and talking about it to myself, like, what did I do today that I, I liked and what did, could I have improved on? Like, if I'm reading about this, this way of communicating effectively in book and, and thinking to myself, how does this look? And then look or asking or praying for these opportunities and then realizing, wait, this argument that I just had with this man was a huge opportunity and it was a missed opportunity for myself. But then replaying my mind and said, how can I correct this for the next time? And looking, and I guess beginning the process of forgiving myself on these little mistakes I'm doing, but like, okay, this is just a process that I'm doing. Um, and realizing I can't make myself better overnight, but just continuing to go back. And that's just, so I would have to say like, you my, knew there was a path. Yeah. You were on a path. I didn't know what the path was, but right. I began down this path and suddenly I'm feeling absolutely free. Here I am on a prison yard believing that I might possibly die here, but yet I've totally felt like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be in some forgotten corner of the world that nobody would know about, but yet I'm making an impact and I'm helping other men um, become better versions of themselves. And that's just, that's where I felt alive. Um, and that's just where it was for me, like those last few years before I was paroled. When you were when you were in prison and, and you were on this path and you were studying and working with the psychiatrists and stuff, what was the support like from other prisoners? Was this frowned upon? Was it dangerous for you to do this? What what? How does that dynamic work? So um, you know what I'm saying. They said like when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. Yeah. So I think before. Um, all of this happened. I, I I never saw the the men that were around me that could have mentored me, but then suddenly after my spare and raise wire moment, like there's mentors all around me. Really, there were men that were already doing this stuff, and we looked at them like, okay, well, those are just the weird dudes, or those are the guys that are just doing their things. But they because they're lifers and have been down so long, um, and they're kind of crazy because nobody's going home. But then we start seeing some lifers go home when the Supreme Court had ruled in our favor. But most of them had done upwards of 30 years, were in their 60s. Wow. Um, and they had like this whole list of like things of, they call it factors of suitability. Like, oh yeah, never been arrested. Um, no write-ups during prison, like a perfect prison record. And I, there was a list on the other side, factors of unsuitability, multiple arrests, violence, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, I fall under this list. I don't qualify for the first list. So regardless, it doesn't apply to me. But then beginning to see like, hey, it, this doesn't matter. I'm finding this freedom. And then remember I was telling you about the, the, the transcripts yes. earlier? Yes. For some reason, one of my friends decides to share with me his transcripts, seven of them, for each hearing that he went through to over those, his 30 years of incarceration. When I opened the transcript and I read and I started reading, I go, wait, what he told me about his hearing and what actually happened are two separate things. Like, this is a... Uh, the factual truth. I could read this. These are the exact words the commissioners are reading into the record and these are his answers. But what he told me is too different. So it also uh, uh, got me to see like this script that we tell ourselves in our head is sometimes so deceiving because this is not the truth. Right. And he will swear, no, this is what had happened. But then I'm looking at it, I go... You're so looking I'm, at a recorded transcript. Yes, There's, it's a recorded transcript yes. and it's transcribed. Yeah. 
So then when I'm, when I'm reading it, I go, I know why they're not paroling him. And it's not because of his crime. It's like by that time, of course, I'm fascinated with books on personal responsibility and, 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 and meaningful um, apologies and things like that. So I go, these are the themes that why he's not getting paroled. So I remember um, I told him, like, hey, I, I think I know why you're not getting paroled. These are the things. He's like, really? So he sat down with me and I started coaching him through the process. Another one of my friends sits with us who was also about to go to the pro board. So people saw us in the day room. They said, like, what is Quan doing with you all guys? And um, my friend said, oh, Quan's preparing us for the pro board. And they laughed. They said, how can Quan help you <laughs> when he's never gone to the pro board? Like, you guys are all crazy. And they just dismissed us as crazy. Well, my friend who was sitting with us went to the pro board and got found suitable. Wow. And that just opened the floodgates. Like, wait, this is where they <laughs> You probably is. had a line of people. Well, there was, but then one of the things uh, I always said, like once I realized that, I said, okay, because I know a guy will tell me, well, the board said this. And I said, no, no. For me to sit down with you, you have to provide me with your transcript and your psych evals. And I want those, the psych evaluations, because those are the form of truth and I could see where they're going. And it was always the same theme. So, um, I mean, like over those last few years, I would, I would say I probably helped about 10, 12 men get found suitable and go home, which is not an insignificant amount, but right. there's so much more work to do in there. And, um, like every time I go back into the prisons and the men find out I'm a former lifer and I, they're telling me their story or they're telling me, and I hear the words they're using to describe their crimes or, or their, um, or where they're at, I go, damn it. I know why he's not getting pro. I, I can help this guy, but I'm not there to help them. Um, so what kind of things would you help them do? Because obviously there's a discrepancy between what they were telling people, uh, friends in prison or whatever, what actually happened. How was that causing a problem? Because it's also this image that they've told themselves, the script that they told themselves in their head of where they're or why they're there in prison. And then so I'm they reading the facts. They're believing something completely different yes. than actually what happened. Yes. So then, What was the quote that was in your, your boardroom? Oh, but the truth about running away from the truth. Running away from the truth. Right. And right. the truth is what scares the men. Because when, so what I coached them on was like, no, you're, this is not what happened. This is what I see. What else is going on? What caused you to do this? And of course, they'll, they'll make excuses. I was like, no, these are excuses. You're justifying this. Like, we're talking about personal ownership of your choices here. So that is where I, I used to try to get them to. To, to that level of accountability for themselves, which terrified a lot of men. Like there, there were more men that sat with me for one session and never sat down again because I was calling them on it. And of course, they didn't want to admit to it. Or there were some men that would, would not even want to sit because I one of my requirements was they had to give me their parole transcripts. And of course, you know, they didn't want, this is a skeleton in the closet and they don't want to... to um, so it's a know. shame thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of shame, but I think that's part of... That's part of the, this, this journey, right, for, for transformation is you, uh, you have to move from shame to forgiveness of things. There has to be some type of um, uh, uh, like self-acceptance, and a lot of times there wasn't. But the men that could get to that level of, of self-acceptance and self-forgiveness are the ones that um, I always felt like, okay, I think it's going to be favorable for them at the board. And for them, it's always, I got them to a point where it doesn't matter if the parole board He's going to let me out this time. I've come to a place where I've learned to forgive myself and I've found my own personal freedom already in here. And that, that's where I was and that is where I wanted to get to mentor. You know, of course, their, their goal to sit with me is to go home, which is a great goal. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's like, 
I know this freaking amazing secret that I feel right now in my mind and in my heart that I already feel free and I want to share it with them, but nobody's listening. Like the only a few of us that are already on this path. Yeah. And I want to get them to the same, like this is such a gift for me. I want to be able to share this with them. And it's hard to get them to that, 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 that mindset. But if we, they, they get there, suddenly you see them walk different in the day room. They're different on the yards. There's this bright smile. This is no longer incarceration. This is a place where I, I tell them like, it's almost like you're, you're a monk in a monastery. You're, you're, you're placed away. Let's use this opportunity to make yourself a better human being, regardless of what's going on around us. Isn't that what we talk about? Like if, if we're talking about mindfulness and being able to navigate and find freedom in conflicts and in challenges and difficulties, this is the best time to learn how to slow down and take a breath and respond in, in, in kindness and everything else that we want to practice. Right. Yeah. Have you ever um, come to any kind of conclusion on what makes one person accept that responsibility and be willing to walk down that path versus somebody that refuses to look at it is, is it have anything to do with, they have something to look forward to, to go home to, is it they've lost everything and there's nothing else. Like, is there anything that you've ever seen that be like, this is it. This is a, ch- a person that has a really good chance of turning it around. Uh, I don't know. There is, there was not a common thread. I think, uh, I mean, even for me to say the word like courage would overgeneralize it. Cause it's like some people that I would thought, would not um, would have plenty of courage to face some of these demons would not step to the plate. Whereas others who I thought like, wait, this guy will never own up to it. And suddenly they share and are vulnerable. So I think the, just the willingness to be authentic and vulnerable, which is terrifying. So I guess the, the, like, that's why I said the overgeneralized word would be courage. Yeah. It's, It's yeah. That's interesting. There must be a lot of people that never get out because they can't do the inner work while they're in there. And they could actually potentially get out if they would do something to, to get in a new direction. Yeah. It's, is there anything, I mean, I guess it's, I know that it's changed a lot over the years, but when you go into the system, is there anything where they say, listen, you got two roads you can go down. You can go down this road and you, you know, nothing will ever go your way. It'll be terrible. Or you can go down this road and potentially someday you might have some kind of a life. Do they give you any direction like that whatsoever? They meaning the prison? The prison system. I don't think so. I'm not sure now because like it's been what, six and a half years since I've been home. And I know the California prison system has changed with quite a few rulings. Um, like I think when I paroled, there were, I don't know, I would guess the numbers like between less than 3% or 5% of people paroling to go home. Whereas now I think it's about 20 to 30, which is still, a lot, it's a lot better, but it's still too low for somebody that's already done their time if they've done the work. But um, So I'm not sure. But I think now with them seeing more people getting paroled, I think it does give some type of hope. Whereas when we came in at the time, when I, came, I remember when I came in, life sentence and my attorney's like, oh, well, it's only second degree, so it's only 15 years of life. I said, are you kidding me? Do you know what this means? Like, it doesn't matter. There's not, they're not paroling any of us. Wow. We weren't supposed to get a life sentence, yeah. So, um, but now I look at, look at that blessing. I had an opportunity to go to parole after, um, on my 15th year. Yeah. On your 15th year. So from the time you, you had that experience uh, in the yard till you got out, that was 15 years? From the experience on the yard, the sparrow and the razor wire. Yeah, one, yeah. That was, um, no, that was on the eleventh year of my sentence, two thousand ten. I would say right around there. 
Okay. Um, and then I went to the parole board in November of 2015, and they found me suitable. And that's when I was paroled. No, and yeah, November 2015, I was paroled from uh, from a life sentence. So, so now you're paroled. You get out. What are you facing when you get out? What did, what is what are you looking at as far as what life is going to be like? Because we talked a little bit about how bad that could be. But you started a business and with like six months. So was that yeah. something that you had planned on? You, you need to figure out a way that you were going to make it on the outside. Now? Um. Well, I mean. Being a bookworm, I've, I've always been interested in entrepreneurship and business books and and things like that. Um, I was involved with a lot of self-help groups towards the f- last few years of my prison sentence. And there was this um, this organization that came in called uh, Defy Ventures, okay. and, which is the nonprofit I work for now. But at the time, it was a pilot program, and they talked about entrepreneurship. And like they, they said this, there was a, their slogan was, transform your hustle, which... <laughs> Drew me right in. Wow. And yeah, um, I, re- I even remember their application at the time. It was like a 25, 30 page application to fill out. It's like, where are you at this point in your life that made you apply and things like that, which is so different from most prison self-help groups where they just have a sign up sheet on the wall, it's your name and your CDCR number. And that's it. Where this one was like a full application. Um, so I said, are they real? And I, I signed up and um, we began the process of, you know, I remember the very first event, which they bring in about 40 to 50 volunteers from the streets, from the business world and from the tech world and, and venture capitalists to basically hear us pitch our business. Um, and they're there to coach us and, and, and judge us on it. So it was like so different from any group I'd been involved with. So um, when I paroled, I stayed in touch with them, continued with the curriculum when I paroled and it was like, you know, I think that continued to make my mind think about like, what's the opportunity that you see and are you going to pursue it? So um, that is how I created my, my first company when I saw an opportunity to create a um, commercial cleaning company for the office building that I was working in. I found out they were looking for a new um, janitorial company. Okay. And I was like, hey, I used to work in the hospital um, working Run, running a, a janitorial cleaning crew. So um, I remember I, I, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Uh, what am I going to call my company? And so I looked up on uh, GoDaddy, like I want it to be something sounding valuable. Or So I looked up platinum janitors and gold janitors and those all taken. And then I said, what about jade janitors? You know, Asians, we love the, the jade stone. Yeah. And I looked up jadejanitors.com. Nobody had claimed it. So I purchased that $9.99. <laughs> and then I emailed the, the building owner. It says, my name's Quan Huyen. I'm the CEO and founder of Jade Janitors. I hear you're looking for this. I used to run a cleaning uh, uh, team up in um, up near Vacaville. And I didn't say I was in prison or anything. I just said that. So he asked me, can you give me a copy of um, your business license and certificate? I didn't know what that was. So I had asked a uh, um, Somebody in my network who, uh, um, and my family said, oh, you have to go to the county courthouse, file this, and go to your, get your business license from the city. I said, okay. I went that same day to go do it, scanned it, sent it into him, and he's the the building owner says, can you give me a copy of your um, janitorial insurance? So I'm like, what is that? So I got on Google, like, what is janitorial insurance? And it showed me the policies, and I looked up, like, what are the minimum um, standards that you would need? I And that's when I, I think I realized 
I think it, it was like $400 policy to purchase it. And, and to maintain, it, I had to pay 80 bucks a month and I have to sign for one year. So I go, okay, this is my first big, bigger gamble. I'm six months home from prison. I don't have a, a, a business. I don't even have a, an employee or a contract. Do I want to pay this? And I go, if I get this contract, this will more than pay for itself. So I, 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 I purchased the contract. The, the policy sent it to the building owner and he asked me, can you give, um, can you give me a quote? So I go, okay, well I work in a building. He didn't know that, but it would take me like what? I think three, three hours to clean it. I'll put somebody here and I'll pay them four to five hours to clean it. This is what I'll pay the person. These are the margins I want. I sent this off and um, the owner says, can you guys start this Friday? That was my first contract. So I put somebody in. Um, that was my very first contract. That was, yeah, six months after I paroled. So still running to this day. Um, I have six employees and four of them are also formerly incarcerated. That's fantastic. Yeah. So what else are you doing with the prisons now? Um, yeah, so I work as the executive director for Defy Ventures, um, where that's our mission is to uh, shift mindsets and give people their best shot at a second chance through our program, which is career readiness, personal development, and um, entrepreneurship training programs. Do you go into prison systems and give talks to people? No, we we, no? So we actually give a seven-month curriculum, the same curriculum I was doing back then, but okay. it's a seven-month curriculum, 1,200 pages um, to basically shift their mindset, to use entrepreneurship as a lens to change their, their mindsets, like where, you know, lessons of pivoting and grit, resiliency, these are great lessons for them, not only to build a business, but we believe to, let's say they have five, ten years left in their prison journey. These are great lessons for them to learn on how to deal with challenges, to get back up from failures. And then, more importantly, when they come home from prison, the reentry journey, and we could reference. Remember, we, we have these uh, uh, lessons for you in there. This is where you're dr drawn to it now. So we have a very robust post-release program for our graduates when they come home. Um, in Southern California, we deliver our program over seven prisons, three transitional homes, um, possibly another couple on the way. And um, we have a full post-release program for when they come home, we issue them a Chromebook. And we begin getting them to, okay, this is what Google Suites is. You have to learn how to create a resume. This is the cloud. Give them tech basics. We call it like uh, technology basics 099. There must be a lot you have to teach these people, Oh, right? yeah. But some of they're so willing to learn. I mean, like they're they're hungry. They're, and yeah, I mean, the rebuilding credit after reentry, rebuilding a community, giving them a community so that they feel like this is part of their journey. Um, so yeah, I mean, this... I mean, my my job is to help men and women prepare and to come home from prison. So, I mean, it's like a, a dream come true. Yeah. Yeah. What what is the what are the statistics on like the educational level of people that are actually in prison for felonies? Any idea? I'm not sure on the exact statistics on that on educational level. I know um, recidivism levels or the 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 rate at which people return to prison. Yeah. Um. Like our program, our graduates at the one-year mark, uh, the rate at return sits at about 7.2%. Whereas depending on the study and which region it's from, um, at the one-year mark, uh, it, you could see anywhere between 30 to 40% of people going back to prison within one year. And in, and um, once again, depending on the region of the study, within three years, two out of three will go back to prison, uh, depending on the study. Whereas graduates from our program, um, we're looking at, it looks like their number is below 15%. We don't have enough of an end yet to be able to directly clarify, but we know like whether that's 
uh, a combination of our curriculum plus the community that we've built plus our employment partners. Because I think the flip side of our mission is to shift mindsets, right? But right. that's not only for those inside, but we also have to shift mindset of the business community of those that are can directly help us to solve this problem, whether that's somebody that believes in second chances or somebody from the business community on the other end that believes in public safety. These are all the same thing. I mean, like to incarcerate one human being in the state of California for one year costs about $90,000. Is that right? Yeah. Well, $90,000. And you contrast that with... Uh, putting somebody through our program from in prison to post release, fifteen hundred to go through our prison in prison program, and a, a cost about another thirty five hundred to support them on post release. So five thousand dollars. You contrast that and the return on that investment. You could see in our numbers of people not going back to prison, and then um, seeing that the employment partners that that continue to hire from our our, our graduate pool is expanding and growing. Is it difficult to get people, because um, you're working with people to hire individuals. Is it difficult to get employers to, to buy into the, to this idea? Yes and no. I mean, it just depends on how progressive some of these companies are. Because usually when I'm talking to them, I, um, like us in the organization, we're, we're saying like, we're not here to ask you to give a job to anybody. What we're asking you is to interview our candidates. And if they are the best possible candidate, if they are the best person for this job, we're, all we're asking you is to look past their criminal conviction. If you believe in this movement, like if you believe in second chances, if you believe in fair chance hiring, why put up an additional barrier? Right. If you're hiring for, uh, I mean, like e even in tech, what they say, like if you're hiring for, let's say somebody to, uh, to do coding, shouldn't you want to uh, uh, hire the best coder possible? Sure. Who cares if they happen to have a, a criminal conviction from 15, 20, 25 years ago? Right. If you're hiring someone to manage a team, if they already have this experience. So um, there, there, there's quite a bit of work to do. But yeah, so some employers are, are resistant. But I mean, the ones that go into prison with us, they are open to it. So that we give fair chance um, um, hiring workshops on this to educate potential employers and to get them that ones that are potentially open to looking at this this talent pool that they're overlooking. Yeah. Yeah. Would you tell listeners what you were telling me um, before the podcast about what happened to the guys that were coming out uh, when COVID hit? Oh, yeah. So some of our grads, yeah. Um, yeah, because I know this because I had, to, uh, we were scrambling. So there were, there were men and women that were coming home um, that already had like transitional homes. They had like uh, places that, that they could go to. Mm-hmm. Pre-COVID, they already had these parole plans. Um, COVID happened, the world slams down, a lot of the parole offices, uh, uh, I think, were unsure. So even up until, like, COVID happened around uh, late March of 2020, there were people still paroling in September, October of 2020, coming home. They had parole plans to go to a certain transitional home. The transitional home's new policy says we can't bring anybody else in, so they can't house the person that they already agreed to. The person contacts the parole agent. The parole offices are closed. The parole office says, we have nothing for you. We can't help you find a hotel. Um, and, of course, they only have $200 gate money, half of probably which is used for them to get no, on the bus. gate money is what they give you when you're leaving. They give yeah, you 200 bucks. 200 bucks. Or, but then more recently, they gave it on a debit card for 200 bucks for them to use for their bus. Because it's technically that money is for them to get to their parole agent. Okay. But now they're going to parole agent, and now they don't have anything left, or they or a little bit of it, and now the person said, well, 
we have nothing for you. We can't get you a new transitional home. Check into a hotel or a motel. Luckily, some of them had family members that could take care of them, that could put up the money. Um, some of them did not, so they also experienced homelessness. Uh, we were scrambling to find uh, um, transitional facilities or, or or sober living homes that could would sure. be willing to house them. But um, yeah, I just don't think. That, help. Yeah, I think that people just don't realize when these people come out if they don't have a family that's willing to help them, they don't have a job. They could probably not get a job. They they cannot get federal assistance or loans from the government. Most people don't know that they can't vote. They're so. What are they supposed to do? Yeah. And I mean, I was just, it still stuns me to think about that, right? Like, because it's so easy to then say this many people or this percentage of people when they come out of prison uh, recommit crimes within this period of time and they end, right, they end up right back in prison. But the, all this money that we use to spend on these prisons, who's putting in any kind of an idea or education to truly help to really help them not yeah. to have to go back in. Yeah. I mean, if you come out and you're almost forced to be a criminal because you don't have a family, and then they just are like, "Well, I'm, there's nothing I can do." Yep. Well, that's like like I shared earlier ninety ninety thousand to 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 incarcerate one human being in the state of California for one year, um, and they come home with two hundred dollars, and that's the only investment. There was no investment put into them, so that's what. Um, like we as an organization feel like, okay, this is how we can try to level the playing field. This is a huge need. Um, the prisons are not doing it. So um, this is what we can do to try to level the playing field and, and help and give economic opportunity for men and women that are coming home, give them some hope. And it's, and the, um, there's a whole political aspect to this, right? Because obviously policy has to change in order for a, a lot of these issues to be changed. But then, politicians are very uh it's a very touchy thing to what they're going to change because you don't want to be labeled soft on crime they don't want to be labeled soft on crime man that is just that is freaking amazing that's and are the prisons overcrowded they still um i think so in california they were overcrowded the looks like the prison population has gone down uh quite a bit whether that's from, from certain policies and or because of COVID and they're not transferring a lot of people into the prison. So we're unsure of that, but the, the, the populations have gone down. They did, they have given like early releases to men and women in there, um, which is a great thing. But then it, the, the bad thing is a lot of them were released during a time when there's no other support services to really help them right. out here. Right. Are, are they, as, as the drug um, laws change or changing across the country, do those affect people that are in prison for those crimes at all? I'm not sure. I, uh, so I don't know exactly about the, the, the legal aspect of some of the laws. I know some, it affected some, but not all. Like, Because um, there were people in their 20 years of life for like marijuana, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the three strikes law in, in California, which uh, uh, a lot of our allies are trying to get overturned and it's like they'll they'll resentence some people but then the, it doesn't apply to a lot of people it doesn't want to be re, uh, from what i'm hearing they don't want to make it retroactive on some of the things so i, I imagine same with the federal uh, laws i don't know what's going on with all that okay cool tell everybody about your book because this book is amazing. Uh, yeah, Sparrow and the Razor Wire, <laughs> Finding Freedom from Within While Serving a Life Sentence. Yeah, September, September 2020, I uh, my book was published. It's called Sparrow and the Razor Wire. It's written for uh, men that are doing long or life-term sentences 
And in it, I share with them how did I come to my own sense of freedom uh, before I paroled for my own life sentence. The feedback I've been given, though, is that, because um, I, tell, I tell people it's written for men that are doing long or life-term sentences, but quite a few people out here that have read it said, hey, um, this book is written for more than just people in prison. Like, we all live in some prison uh, uh, of a sort or another. True. and. Um, so they've been finding some, I guess, valuable lessons in my book too. The best part of, of my day when I go into our office during COVID, every once in a while I'll head in and I'll see, um, a little stack of mail from men or women that were incarcerated that have read my book. And they say like how it's brought them like hope or freedom. Um, and yeah, so those are the, some really cool letters cause we've been able to donate, um, over 2,700 books into prisons. Uh, my book was approved for distribution throughout all the California prison law libraries uh, late last year. So that was a huge win. That's and pretty cool. Yeah. So now just working on 49 more states to get it into. When I, I wanted to ask you this before. The, the books that you were reading that were helping you, were you able to get them in the prison libraries? Were you able to re- get them? Or? Some, depending on some. Like my, I, I was lucky enough to have... Um, Family members sent certain books that I wanted. Also, um, there were a lot of men that were, let's say, that began to read. Like there was a group that share books with each other. Okay. So there's always that. But yes, most of the time, the books that we would want, someone would have to order and then it would be passed around. There was kind of like a waiting list. Like guys would be like, okay, you're fit on the list. And like, oh, you got that book? I want to check it out. Can I get on the list? And he's like, oh, yeah, you're fit on the list, whatever. And they make sure that they take care of it like that. That's great. That's really great. How can. How can the average individual that becomes aware of this story help in some way? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of ways they could help. I, they could go, um, if they want to get involved with the work I'm doing at Defy Ventures, they can, um, and or uh, the work I'm doing to get more of my books in the prison, they could go right to my website. Um, it's quanxhuin.com, Q-U-A-N-X-H-U-Y-N-H.com. Okay. Or they could do sparrowintherazorwire.com. It points straight to it because I figure it's easier for people to find it. Okay. Um, on my website, I, they have an option like I want to find out more of the work you're doing at Defy Ventures and it will notify me. Or like they, I want to get more of help you get more of your books in the prison um, and they, it notifies me. Or they could just reach out on my website and just figure out other ways they want to get involved, whether that's... Um, becoming possible employment partners, coming into prison with me and our, uh, my team out there in SoCal, or if they're, um, we are, our organization is a national organization, so there's, there's chapters that we have uh, throughout the United States that other possible allies that want to head into the prison systems with us to see um, and help us make an impact, yeah. Cool, very good. Well, BT, we can put that stuff in the drop-down, right? That information, yeah, cool. Great. We'll do that. Well, Juan, thanks so much for coming on. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I'm really happy for what you did with your life. And I think you're saving a lot of souls out there, which is a fantastic thing. One of the things that that we like to talk about is um, what a person can, tra- you know, I believe people are always transforming. We, we, we do nothing but transform energy. It's being transformed into something, but it's our choice as to what we're going to transform. From better or from worse, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. And I'm in a, in a place um, that could probably be very dark 
We know that it can be dangerous uh, and really not great psychologically. You're one of those bright lights out there that's really helping people. So congratulations to you. Mm, thank you. Well, thank you for um, having me here and thank you for, for letting me uh, share the impact that I'd like to make in the world. You're welcome. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you. All right, you're clear. Good. Yeah, nice. you're clear. Well done. Thank you. That was you. great. That was a fun interview. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was educational as hell. I mean, you know what I didn't ask you? Um, did you have, did, how did your mom do with all this when you were going through all that? She, um, there's a chapter in my book called Conversations with My, with my Mother. Uh, that I talk about it. She, I think, didn't do well. I mean, of course she didn't do well, but I think um, her thing was like, once Quan comes home, my life will be better. Uh-huh. And like, that's just how it was for her. But I think she was like that after my father died. Once Quan gets older and, and begins to take care of the family, I'll feel better. And So there's always a part of her, um, to this day, she can't talk about my father's death. Is that right? She has not grieved it. Yeah, her and my brother. My sister saw a therapist, so she's been able to grieve. Her and I have some really cool conversations, but my mom can't. It's like she, she has not. She still wears the wedding ring. Uh, his wedding ring. So she yeah. has not even talked to another man. Um, I think one of the most difficult conversations I had with her was right before I went to my parole hearing in 2015, and she's there with me, and she says, "Oh, I." Um, you need to go home. I hope you get to go home. I go, yeah, I hope I get to go home too, but, excuse me, but I go, um, mom, there's much more than me just going home. Um, I said, but you deserve to go home. And I told her, I go, mom, like, let's, let's look at it this way. Um, I paroled from, what if like 16 years ago, I was killed that night and you go into the, you go into the prison system you go to the parole hearing of the man that killed me, and he tells you he's sorry for killing your son. He's sorry for, for um, uh, uh, what happened and everything, but he's, his life has changed, right? Yeah. He's, he's created groups, and he's no longer the same person. And this is the guy that killed me. Like, Would you be okay with him going home? Would you let him go home? And she's like, no. I said, okay, Mom, then let's just be happy I'm alive, that you get to hug and kiss me, and that we get to spend time, like, this is what we're dealing with. Like, I killed another uh, uh, mom's son. Yeah. So that's when I think it finally clicked for her, like, crap. But fortunately, they did parole me. But yeah, that was, like, one of my most difficult conversations I ever had, and that was with my mom. I can't even imagine. Well, I'm glad that you got to have that time with her. That's great. Thanks for listening to the Successful Mind Podcast. And if you like what you heard and you want to know more, go to davidnagel.com forward slash free stuff.